All right, amen. Let's go to our Bibles and let's open to Jeremiah chapter 11. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah. We find ourselves in chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Uh, if you have an electronic device on which you have your Bible, that's great. Just set it to stun so that uh, it doesn't ring during the service. Otherwise, I am obligated by law to make fun of you. I don't want to do it. I have to do it. Otherwise, I'll lose my license. The topic we're going to find in this text, rediscovering God's word did not keep the people of Judah from burning incense to Baal. The title of our message, it's a whole new Baal game. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you for that appreciation. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thanks for our message this morning. Lord, we intend to listen to you and to hear your heart, to have our heart greatly affected. If there are changes or challenges, Lord, that come, I pray that we would gladly receive them, knowing that you are a good and gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, and that you would never want anything that isn't ultimately for our good. And I pray that we would receive this word as good hearers and then act upon it. Help us to understand what was going on in Judah in the 6th century from the perspective of the Jews, but as importantly, or perhaps even more importantly, make a real application of it to our own lives in the 21st century. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. From the assassination of John F. Kennedy to the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, from Roswell, New Mexico to NASA's moon landings, every major event of the last 2,000 years has prompted a conspiracy theory. That's the opening paragraph of a series of articles by The Telegraph, a United Kingdom publication, called The 30 Greatest Conspiracy Theories. Top of their list includes, uh, or at the very top of their list is September 11th, who people have put into the uh, category of a conspiracy theory. And somewhere along the line, they discuss whether or not Paul was actually dead. Uh, back in the, was it the late 60s, early 70s, that the Paul is dead rumors? How many remember and have any idea what I'm talking about? Paul McCartney, the Beatle, who was supposedly dead. Uh, and uh, I think some of his music after the Beatles was dead, but uh, I think he's alive. Now, there was a conspiracy, a real one, in 6th century Judah. Because it's mentioned in verse 9 of our text where we read, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What was it? Well, twice we are told that the Jews were offering incense to Baal. It's in verse 13 and in verse 17. And so we might call this the Baal conspiracy. Not everyone was involved, however. Jeremiah was going against the flow. For his part, he was involved in a resurgence of reading and preaching God's word. I may sound like a crazed conspiracy theorist for saying this, but the Baal conspiracy is still with us today. As we work through these verses, we're going to see two things. Number one, you can get into a Bible resurgency, or number two, you can give in to a Baal conspiracy. In verses 1 through 8, you can get into a Bible resurgency. You're going to notice that the word covenant is repeated five times in the first eight verses. It's referring to the discovery of a portion of God's word by Hilkiah, the high priest, during the time when repairs were being made to the temple at Jerusalem. 
According to Deuteronomy chapter 31, there was to be a copy of the book of the law kept beside the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But it had been forgotten, it had been neglected, it had been lost as it were. Rediscovered by Hilkiah, he gave it to Shaphan the scribe who then took it to and read it to King Josiah. Josiah was struck with grief and terror. He was certain that the Lord was furious with him and for the people for their disobedience to his law. Immediately, Josiah set upon a program to eliminate pagan worship and to obey the ancient covenant of the Lord. He toured the land and everywhere he went, he destroyed pagan shrines and celebrated the Passover for the first time in decades. Jeremiah was excited about this resurgency of the word of God. He went around on assignment from God urging his countrymen to heed the word they were hearing. And so uh, Josiah was going around, and as the king, he had the power to destroy these pagan shrines and to reinstitute the worship of Jehovah. And then Jeremiah was coming in behind him, and he was preaching that the people should take this as a genuine revival to their own hearts and make it their own. And so in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people. I will be your God that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And I answered and said, so be it, Lord. Now, scholars mostly agree that what was rediscovered in the temple was a portion of the book of Deuteronomy, the portion that reiterated the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he first delivered the Jews from 400 years of slavery to Egypt. It was a conditional covenant in that God promised material and physical blessings if the people obeyed him, but he warned them of cursing and judgment if they disobeyed him. Some of God's covenants were unconditional. He made many promises to Abraham that were unconditional about a people and a land and uh, that they would be a blessing to all peoples. But this particular covenant, the Mount Sinai covenant, was conditional. God said, here's what I'm going to give you and do for you if you're obedient, here's what I will have to take away from you and do to you if you are disobedient. Now, the Jews at that time voluntarily accepted the conditional terms, both for themselves and for their future offspring. And so it was binding on the Jews throughout all of their generations, and God was now pointing out to the uh, inhabitants of Judah that they were disobeying this covenant. And so in verse 6, the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. And so as I indicated, Jeremiah was to go on tour, proclaiming the word of God, and then he would end his reading of it with an exhortation for the people to heed it. So Josiah coming through, 
establishing reform by the power of the king and then Jeremiah coming back and saying, hey, now receive this as from the Lord. Take it into your heart and make it genuine. Anytime you read the word of God, there ought to be the expectation that it will not return void, but instead accomplish mighty things in and through the hearers. So when I read the Bible for myself, or when I hear the Bible read, I should have the expectation that it is going to accomplish something supernatural, something spiritual. At the same time, there is often the experience that very little actual change occurs in the hearers. Now, the fault cannot be with the word since it is alive and powerful to the saving of the soul. There must therefore be a dullness or a defiance in the hearers. Therefore, when a person can listen but walk away unchanged and unchallenged. That's one of the reasons, I mean, it sounds silly, but it's important. It's one of the reasons why we actually read through the text on Sunday mornings and in all of our Bible studies. Because you understand, obviously, that the important part of what happens this morning is what God has already said in his word. I'm here to try to bring some clarification to it. I'm here hopefully anointed by the Holy Spirit or gifted by God to bring it to you. But it's the word itself that is powerful. And so even if I go off the rails, even if what I say doesn't make any sense to you or what some other Bible teacher says, the word of God itself is powerful and alive. God says it can discern between your soul and spirit something no one else and nothing else can do. You can go to psychologists and psychiatrists all your life. You can drop LSD. You can be on peyote and mescaline. Nothing can discern between the soul and the spirit except the word of God as applied by the spirit of God. And so this powerful, amazing thing is happening, and yet some people walk away completely unchallenged and unchanged, both Christians and non-Christians. While I think sometimes it might be valid to criticize preaching or the preacher or the delivery of the word, if the word is there, even surrounded by bad preaching, I'm not talking about heresy, but just preaching that's not very exciting, still the word of God is powerful enough to change me. And so if a person hears the word and continues in sin or doesn't get saved, then there's a dullness or a disobedience in that person because the word of God is powerful. Now the Jews had a history of walking away unchanged and unchallenged. They were experts at it. Read the Old Testament, you'll see many times they're called disobedient, sinful, stiff-necked people who refuse to heed God. Verse 7 says, For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. In other words, God says, I'm just going to hold them accountable to what they promised through their forefathers that they would do. I said I would do certain things. They said they would do certain things. They have not kept their end of the bargain, so I am going to bring the punishments and judgments and disciplines that I must. Now, God reveals himself in this section as being earnest and early in exhorting us. I like those three words. He is earnest and early to exhort us. One possible translation of earnest is the word diligent, 
We would say that God is diligent to instruct us, to teach us from His Word. There are many possible examples I could use. For instance, have you ever gone through a day or a week and had the experience of hearing the same passage read or taught uh, by different means? Maybe you get up in the morning and if you have devotions, you read it and there it is in your morning devotions. Then you're driving to work or home from work or somewhere and you turn on a Christian radio program and they're covering that same passage or they mention it in their study. You come to church Wednesday night or Sunday morning and your pastor is talking about it. You begin to get the understanding that God is trying to speak to you. Now, that's a more obvious way that many of us have experienced or had other people tell us about, but it's just to prove what God says here is that I am working hard to bring you the Word of God. And especially in our country, um, you can't swing a cat without hitting a Bible, right? It, it, there's, there's the Word of God everywhere. Whether you're actually opening the Word or listening to Christian radio or whatever you're doing or not doing, it's not hard to get the Word. And so God is diligent to instruct you. And then he says he's early. Now this word comes from a root word that would be used to describe loading up your donkey first thing in the morning to get a head start for the journey of that day. It's an early start with your load, basically. And so this indicates that God has every day a load for you to carry. He doesn't just load you up, however. I know some of you, even right now, you think, yeah, amen, brother. I got up this morning and I am carrying such a heavy burden. I am burdened. I am weighed down. I mean, some of you, you know, just by averages, you have to be people who sometimes wake up and say, I don't even want to get out of bed. I don't know if I can get out of bed. My burden is so heavy. I was hoping I didn't wake up. And there's that kind of anguish. But you have to remember that God through Jesus Christ said that he would be your yoke fellow, that he would shoulder every load with you and that his load each day was what? Light. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It doesn't mean it isn't difficult. And that's where we go wrong. We think, well, wait a minute, Lord, this is not a light burden at all. He didn't say it wouldn't be difficult, that it wouldn't be trying, that it wouldn't be a test, that it wouldn't be hard. He said it wouldn't be heavy. And he meant that he would walk with you in it and through it and carry more than his share of the load. And so that's where we have to be with him. And then God exhorts us. It's a complicated word whose root means to duplicate or to repeat, and it's come to mean to warn. In other words, it's a duplicated, repetitious message that warns us. God makes himself clear to us by repetition, warning us for our own good. As Mark Twain was once quoted as saying, He said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. A lot of times people say, oh, the Bible, it's subject to interpretation. Nobody knows what it's saying. Yeah, that's not the parts of the Bible that really bother people. It's when the Bible speaks clearly and then people say, hey, I just disagree with that. Jesus was not unclear at all, was he, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He either is or he isn't. There's, there's nothing uh, cloudy about that statement. If you want to get to the Father, he said, you have to go through me. Very direct statement. Those are the parts of the Bible that people have trouble with, not the weird creatures coming out of the sea in the book of the Revelation, which, by the way, all that's interpreted by Revelation. That's not hard either, but it seems harder. But, you know, so God is clear. 
in his warnings. And so he is earnest and early to exhort us. All we need, according to verse 8, is an ear, but it must be an ear that is inclined to obey what is heard. The Jews in Judah and Jerusalem heard with their ears, but instead they followed the dictates of their own evil hearts. They listened to their own hearts rather than hearing God's heart expressed through the word that he was speaking to them. And so we need ears that actually hear. How do we develop that? Well, spiritual ears, or we could substitute the word heart, your spiritual heart can only be opened up by the word of God, but it seems it must be the word of God that you actually act upon. So you hear and you heed the word, and then the more you'll hear it and the more you'll heed it. That's very simple. Now, here's where we get in trouble. We either, I don't know why, there's a million reasons why, but we sort of believe or convince ourselves that when we read something in God's word, we can't really do it. And so husbands will read something like, love your wife the way Christ loves the church. And your first thought is, I can't do that. That's impossible. Or a wife will read, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And she say, yeah, right. I can't do that. Now, here's the other thing. Remember, we're talking about how alive, how powerful the word of God is. When God, we always say it this way, God's word is his enabling. And so God's word, because it's alive, because it's powerful, because it can do what no other thing, no other person can do, we have to understand that when God tells us to do something, he is also giving us the power to be able to do it. And if we say, I can't, it really means I won't. doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. We still have to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get saved and start perfectly loving your wife the way Christ loves the church or submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. There's a sanctification process, a growing process. But we're not able, because we've been born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, given a new nature, Christ's nature, we're not able to say, I can't do that. Because God wouldn't tell you to do something you can't do. Which of you parents honestly tell your children to do something they cannot do and then discipline them if they don't do it? What kind of a cruel parent would you be? Do you ever really tell your children to do something that is impossible for them and then hold them accountable to it? No, you only keep it in the sphere of what you know they're able to perform. Why? Because you love them and you're teaching them. And so when you read something in God's word, it contains an enabling for you to do it. Not perfectly, but as you heed it, you will hear more from God, heeding and hearing and heeding and hearing and growing in the Lord. If you don't obey, keeps repeating himself for your good. And so sometimes God seems indifferent to people. He seems distant. He seems uninvolved. But it's because we're not heeding his word. We're not doing what he's asked us to do. Here he says, I'm always earnestly exhorting you early for your good. All you have to do is respond. Jeremiah experienced a resurgence in the word of God. Josiah rediscovered it. He started reading it. Jeremiah got all excited about it. I'm sure his devotions took on a new meaning. He started preaching the word to his neighbors and friends. He went out on a tour doing it. He was excited, and we can be excited too. God has been talking to you this week. I, I, he has to. That's what he does. 
There's never a, a minute or a day or a week, certainly, that goes by where God isn't trying to speak to us. Creation speaks to it. God says, I want to talk to you so much that even creation talks to you. And I'm talking to you in different ways if you'll listen. So we need to just hear what he's saying and then we need to heed it. If what he's directing or asking seems to be a burden, it is not a burden because his burden, he says, is light and God can't lie. We think it's a burden because it's difficult because it requires that we walk by faith, trusting that he'll actually be there for us. But he says, nonetheless, trust me, walk with me, be yoked with me, I will be with you. Now, the alternative is in verse 9 through 17, you give in to some Baal conspiracy. Burning incense to the Canaanite god Baal figures prominently in the remaining verses. Now, here's something interesting about Baal. It seems that it's a catch-all name or a title for any number of deities. Baal derives from a word that simply means master. Baal wasn't one particular god or idol. If you're an archaeologist excavating various sites in the Middle East or the, you know, over there, and you find, you're not looking for the Baal. There's not one represent, oh, this is Baal. Whatever local god was worshipped was called Baal. That was the master god of that particular culture. This opens up our understanding of how today we can still be affected by Baal, even though we don't call it that or have a particular idol representing it. Whoever or whatever we yield ourselves to is a master if it isn't Jesus Christ and it becomes our Baal. It can be a passion or a possession or a person, but whoever or whatever it is, it's Baal. Now, this may sound antiquated, it may sound old-fashioned, but I think it's more powerful this way. If I'm dabbling with something, if I'm doing something, and I think, well, you know, how bad is that? If God were to come to me and say, hey, Gene, you're worshiping Baal. Well, now I'm freaked out. Aren't you freaked out? Wouldn't it? That's kind of freaky. What I think is just some little problem in my life, some little area that doesn't completely belong to the Lord. He says, no, that's Baal worship. And then I start thinking about all the horrible things that the children of Israel did in their Baal worship, and it should, uh, it should be meaningful. It's a conspiracy in that the devil is the one who started us thinking we could get out from under God as our master. He told Eve, who then sold Adam on the idea, that each of us could be as God. We didn't need God to be God because we could each be like God. God didn't need to be our master. We could be our own masters. That hasn't worked out too well. It immediately plunged the human race into what we call the fall, and that's the nicest thing that you can say about it. All of the terrible things that you think and feel and all of the things that happen in the world that are not good, they are the result of Adam and Eve deciding they wanted to be their own master and not have God to master them. So how do you know if you're part of a Baal conspiracy? Well, for sure, if you are actively sinning, you are a conspirator. There's a difference between all of us being sinners, which we are, even the Apostle Paul once said, I am the chief of sinners, acknowledging that while we're at home in this temporary body, we will continue to struggle against the flesh and have sin. 
There's a difference between being a sinner and actually harboring sin, actually deciding to sin, actually willfully, habitually living in sin. Here is a common example. I hope no one speak, uh, believes I'm speaking to them personally. Of course, I am if you're in this situation, but it's probably the most common example I uh, come upon in pastoral ministry. A person falls in love, but is it a biblical love? And you say, what is that? Well, for example, the Lord said you should not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. A believer, a believing Christian, a born-again Christian is not to marry a non-believer. God says that, that's not good for you, and, and I'm forbidding that. But a lot of people fall in love with non-believers, and I'm here to say that that is bail for you. Because God, as master, warned you against it in his word, but you say, I'm going to follow the dictates of my own heart. In just this one area, God is still God. I worship God. I love God. I go to church. I pray. I have devotions. I keep all of that. But in this one area, I am following the dictates of my heart, which tells me I'm in love with this person who's better than a Christian anyway. And I am not going to let go of that. I'm going to hold on to that. And God, because he loves you, not because he hates you or wants to destroy you or crush you, he says, that is Baal worship. You are worshiping yourself as your own master, following the dictates of your own heart, which can only get you into trouble eventually. Something seemingly good can take the place of God. Even something you're doing for him and in his name. I've known a lot of guys over the years for whom the ministry has become a sort of mistress. And all they want to do is be involved in the ministry. And they leave their families behind and they ruin their families, as it were, for the sake of the ministry. In fact, some people even teach that your family is second to the ministry. Even though Paul the Apostle says, if you can't rule your home, how can you minister in the church? They say, well, yeah, I don't know what he meant by that, but I'm, I'm 100% for Jesus Christ, and if my family's not on board, that's just too bad. Now, this doesn't mean a minister's family has to be perfect or that we get held to standards that are unrealistic, but I think you know what I mean. The ministry, it's even been called by many commentators a mistress, and when it is, then it is bail to you. You can be teaching the word of God. You can be leading a church. It can be a small church, a large church, a mega church. It doesn't matter. It has become bail. So let's see what more we can glean from these remaining verses. Verse nine, and the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. You think the Jews in Judah would have learned from looking at the history of Israel. Why didn't they learn? Well, first of all, the human heart has a tremendous capacity for deception. In the case of Judah, part of their Baal conspiracy was believing the lie that God would protect Jerusalem and the temple from destruction because that's where he hung out. And so they could look out and say, well, our forefathers, they had the tabernacle in the wilderness. That was no big deal. It was a portable tent. And Israel to the north, they set up their own worship uh, you know, up in um, 
Mount, wherever it was, I was trying to remember it this whole time. But anyway, uh, and, and so it's no big deal that God let them be judged, but we have the actual temple and we are in Jerusalem. And so they convinced themselves that they could do whatever they wanted and God would stop right at the gates. You know, he maybe bring the army up to the gates, but that's it. Well, the Babylonian army came to the gates three times and then they burned down the wall and came in and burned all the houses and they destroyed the temple and they looted it and they took everyone captive. God was serious about this thing. Second of all, if we have Baal in our lives, we always think it's subordinate to God, so it's not really a big deal. In other words, like the Jews, we still go through many of the motions of actually worshiping God. We pray, we have devotions, we do all of that. We have this other area and we think, the big thing cancels out the small thing and God says, no, the small thing is gonna corrupt you and destroy you. It's like a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. And if I put a drop of poison in a glass of water, it's only a tiny drop, but I can't find it anymore because it dissipates through that whole glass and I can't drink that anymore or suffer the consequences if I do. And so God cannot be the master passion if we have many passions. And that's a deception as well. Verse 11, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape. Though they cry out to me, I won't listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense. They will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. Now it initially seems disturbing that though the people cry out, God will not listen to them. But the context shows that though they cry out, they are refusing to repent. They expected God to help them while they continued in disobedience. So verse 13, for according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. They served many gods, but God said they were all Baal because the Jews had given themselves over to them to a certain extent as masters. Verse 14, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Now, God would not hear them does not mean he did not hear them. Of course he did. He was hearing them the way they chose to hear him. They heard him but refused to obey or do anything about it. So God says, I will hear you and refuse to do anything about it. And so God was uh, giving them the same kind of treatment that they gave him. All they needed to do was repent, but what they wanted to do was to continue to serve God and Baal. God and whatever else their heart was set upon. I would offer as an illustration here, marital love. Do you want to share the person you love with all your heart with some third person? Unless you're a crazed, whacked out polygamist, the answer to that question, of course, is no. You get married to live happily ever after with the companion uh, of your youth and, and to have that relationship grow two into one and you don't want to be adding other people to that. God has loved you with an everlasting love from eternity through eternity. He will not share you especially not with some other master that will only ultimately deceive and destroy you. 
He can't share you and be a God of love. Of course, he is more than a God of love or a God who loves. God is love. And because he is love and loves you, he must be jealous over you. And he must act upon his jealousy to retrieve you even from yourself if necessary. And so God is active when you are rebelling. And he says, I have to do something about this. You don't know the danger that you're in. I need to be your master passion. And there's no room in your life for any other passion, however small. And any other passion will put you on a path to ruin. And now listen to God's tenderness in the next two verses. He says, verse 15, What has my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many? And the holy flesh has passed from you. When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. God employed two illustrations. In the first, he illustrated his love for Judah as that of a faithful husband with a whoring wife. Holy flesh is a reference to their sacrifices in the temple. They kept making them. They kept outwardly the rituals of Judaism, but they also worshiped evil at the same time. And he says, it's like a husband having a whore for a wife. And again, unless you're some kind of crazed individual, not a good thing. In the second, he illustrated his care and plan for Judah as that of an olive tree that he had planted and was constantly tending in order to bring forth the most abundant fruit. The picture here is like a, 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 you know, a guy who owns an orchard, but it only has one massive olive tree in it, and all he does day and night is tend it to bring forth the, the most abundant yield of uh, olive oil. Instead, he ends up breaking off its branches and burning it down because ultimately it produces no fruit even though he was caring for it so tenderly. And so in verse 17, the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Offering incense to Baal is the outward expression of their inward disposition to serve two masters, God and Baal or God and something else. Jesus once said, this is Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Again, we deceive ourselves. We think, no, no, you don't understand. I love the Lord. But I also am sinning in this area because my heart just feels right about it. How can my heart be so wrong? I know what God says, but I'm going to continue in this area of sin. But after all, I love the Lord. And Jesus would have to say, and he has said, and Matthew says, now listen, you think you can, but you cannot serve two masters you end up hating one of them. And if you're trying to serve the Lord and some other master, you're going to end up sadly hating the Lord in favor of the other master because you're already loving the other master more than the Lord by definition because you're refusing to do what the Lord says. It's not a choice. It's not the yin and the yang. It's not good and evil. It's Jesus or nothing. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. You know, Jesus, we talk about, you know, in, in sports and, uh, you know, all being all-in. Jesus is all-in with you. 
in eternity past, when there was a discussion among the triune God about the redeeming of a future lost race, Jesus said, I will be the God-man. I will die for the sins of the world, rise from the dead, and forever be the God-man in a physical glorified body. I'll, I'll take that on. I am all in. And so he comes to us and he saves you. And many of you have a testimony of having been radically and dramatically saved. You would be dead by now. And worse than dead, you'd be in hell. And worse than that, you'd be facing the final judgment. And so Jesus is all in and he says, you need to be all in. There can't be another master. And anytime there is another master, Jesus is no longer your master and you actually are hating him. Paul, the apostle, said in Romans 6.16, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. God doesn't mince words. He says, you need to be all in as my slave, as my servant, as my bondservant, and then you will obey leading to righteousness, which is wonderful. The alternative is that you will sin leading to death spiritual death, the ruin of everything good. There still exists a Baal conspiracy. Satan's lie that we can be as God reverberates in our flesh and it's fueled by the world around us. It is not the only voice we hear, however. God speaks. He constantly speaks. He does it in many different ways, but especially through his word. He reveals himself as our master with nothing but the best intentions for bringing us to completion as very special projects. As I've said many times over the years and is provable from scripture, the entire universe only exists as a backdrop so that God can have a relationship with you, so that he can make you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he can live forever with you. We add nothing to God. He doesn't need us. It's not that he's pining away for a relationship, but he's decided to share himself with us. And he speaks to us about it. And all he really says is you, there can't be any other master. It's an all or nothing proposition. It's an all in proposition. I'm all in, God says, you be all in too. Let's pray.